Acts chapter 2. I want us to notice that the, uh, the church, the early church there, as described in Acts chapters 2 through 6, was an absolutely wonderful congregation to be a part of. We would notice, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44, it says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful and exciting and encouraging church to be a part of? They were together every day. They were so happy they couldn't stand it. They were so happy they couldn't hide it. And the people all around them were, were excited because these people were excited. And, and if anybody had a need, they sold their stuff and they helped out one another. And they're all of one accord. There's no divisions. There's no denominations. It says they're all of one accord. And they're in each other's homes. And they're daily together. And they've got this joy and this happiness and this gladness and this simplicity of heart. They just love the Lord and one another. Doesn't that sound like a great congregation? Man, I'll tell you what, I'd have loved to have been part of that congregation. Not to say that y'all ain't all those things. Just saying, you know, that would have been cool. And, and it didn't stop. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 4. And check this out. In Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, we see the same thing reflected. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Man, they were together. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. There wasn't a soul there that said, this is mine. Not one, according to the text. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't you love to have heard Peter stand up and tell you how awesome the resurrection of Jesus Christ was? Wow. And Peter could say, listen, I saw the tomb that Sunday morning, and I'm telling you he wasn't there. And I have seen him. Think he'd have your attention? What an awesome congregation. What an awesome time. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Look at the next two verses. And Joseph's or Joseph, depending on your translation, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Brethren, one of the reasons that was such an awesome congregation was because of men like Barnabas. 
or Joseph, or Joseph, depending on what you want to call him. One of the reasons that congregation was such an awesome congregation to be a part of was because of men like him. And did you notice this? Did you notice in that verse, he was named Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. Don't miss that verse. The apostles saw in this particular man, church leadership saw in this particular man such an incredible encourager that that's what they began calling him. That wasn't his given name. Isn't it wonderful? And I've heard church leadership, and I'm talking about the elders and, and, and other leaders, by example, in this congregation, talk about other members of the congregation in a wonderful way. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want something done, go see this brother. Hey, if you need that, take. hey, I was in need and this, this, this sister was here. Okay. People have reputations, and Barnabas was always encouraging everybody, and the apostles even didn't miss it with all they were doing. And so they named him Son of Encouragement. That's what they started calling him. Later on in Acts 15 and verse 25, the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem wrote in that letter, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, even in, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, as it were, they were still the leadership, all with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. See it? Barnabas was beloved. Why was Barnabas so beloved? Because Barnabas was an encourager. Because Barnabas brought everybody around him up. But he did far more than that. He was their beloved Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was a priceless asset to the body of Christ. He was priceless. He was encouraging and more. Listen, encouragement wasn't just something that Barnabas did. It's what he was. Don't miss that. Do we do certain things? We, we do certain things, but that doesn't mean that's who we are. Who we are comes from inside of us, and we're always that. It's not that just we do something here and there along the lines, but what we are, we always are. I am a Christian. Does that mean I'm a Christian when I leave this building Tuesday morning, Thursday night? That's what I am. Now, there are certain things I do as a Christian, but I don't want what I do to define me. I want what I am to define me. Encouragement was not something that Barnabas simply did on occasion. It's who he was. It's what he couldn't help being, and his doing sprang from that. And the fact is... Yes, it's not what he did, but who he was, and everybody knew it, everybody could see it, even church leadership with all they had going on saw it clearly. You see, not only was he their beloved Barnabas, Acts 15 and verse 25, but Barnabas was always, don't miss this, I'm going to pause for effect. Not only was he their beloved Barnabas. But Barnabas was always willing to give his beloved brethren the benefit of 
the doubt. He was always looking for the best in his beloved brethren, even when it was the hardest to find. Barnabas was always looking for the best in his beloved brethren, even when nobody else in the church could even remotely see it, find it, or, or, or recognize it. Barnabas was still looking for it. For example, turn to me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We all know the story of Saul of Tarsus. We know he's blinded on the road to Damascus. We know that, that God had Ananias go to him, and, and Ananias was like, eh, you don't, the, the, you, this man has done some awful things. And God said to Ananias, he said, go, he's my chosen vessel. Okay? So we know that, that Saul of Tarsus arose and was baptized when he tells the story later in Acts 22 and verse 16. And, and we know that, that not too long after that, these events take place. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. When we think of the disciples, who do we think of? Peter. Peter wanted nothing to do with this guy. Peter was afraid that he was a spy. Peter was afraid he wasn't really converted. What about, what about John, the, the apostle of love, as we call him? Now, John didn't want anything to do with him. None of the apostles wanted anything to do with this man. But Barnabas, don't miss that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas saw something in him that even the apostles couldn't see because Barnabas was always willing to look for the good. He was a son of encouragement. But Barnabas took him brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and, and how he'd spoken to him and, and how he'd preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they, were, but they attempted to kill him. It took a Barnabas to put Saul of Tarsus in that position. It took a Barnabas to accomplish that. But that's not all. Later on in Acts chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, when the church at Antioch was growing and they needed more faithful and diligent teachers and leaders, once again, guess who to the rescue? Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Look at what we read. Acts eleven nineteen. now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, you'll recall that from Acts 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas. If you want to know what's going on, if there's a good work going on, if you want to see that good work do more, send them Barnabas. So they did. They sent him Barnabas. And when he came, verse 23, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and did what? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, didn't just do something, he was something. Everywhere he went, he was an encourager, so look what he does. 
When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man. Wouldn't you love to have your name in the divinely inspired scripture and have God come out and say through the Holy Spirit, he was a good man or she was a good woman. Wouldn't that be awesome? That was Barnabas. Holy Spirit says. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Brethren, when you've got people around like Barnabas who are always encouraging, they're seeing the good in other people, they are, they are just constantly encouraging everybody around them, good things are going to happen in church. Then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul. Remember Saul? The apostles didn't want anything to do with him. Barnabas knew there was something in there good. When he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Isn't it a shame that that's the only thing that Acts 11:26 is remembered for? Now, it's a wonderful thing that, that they were called Christians, and that's why we're called Christians. I'm not demeaning that. But I'm saying... 99% of the time, I think when we think of Acts 11:26, and they were called Christians first at Antioch, and we miss the rest of the text. What's the rest of the text? Barnabas went and got Saul of Tarsus because he still saw something good in him, and he brought him there, and for a whole year they worshiped with the church, and they taught a great many people, and they were called Christians first at Antioch. Don't miss the rest of that verse. Well, let's not, let's not be amongst that group of people who study God's word and leave out two-thirds of the verse for the third we want or like or are familiar with. D don't do that, please. In Acts chapter 13, John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And if we turn over to Acts 15, it is not, and I don't mean to be irreverent at all, but if we turn over to Acts 15, it is not the mighty Apostle Paul that gives John Mark a second chance, but it is good old Barnabas, the encourager and extender of grace and second chances, who gives John Mark another chance to be and to do better in Acts 15, 36 through 40 which we'll read in a moment, but listen to this before we do. It wasn't the Apostle Paul who used the word grace over a hundred times in his writings in the New Testament. It was Barnabas who extended that grace in his life to John Mark. You got that? You with me on that? Barnabas at this point extended that grace and those second chances we read in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord. See how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take John called Mark, but Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And again, that story's in Acts 13. Then a contention became so sharp the contention became so sharp, they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and, and departed. Brethren, 
Every congregation of the Lord's Church, every congregation of the Lord's Church needs more Barnabases amongst its members. More encouragers as opposed to discouragers. I want you to think about that word, encourage and discourage. What is the main root? Courage, right? Courage. An encourager is one who increases the courage of others. A discourager is one who decreases the courage of others. So you're either one who increases their courage or decreases their courage, hence either an encourager or a discourager. In an old article by Brother Travis Main, I'd like to give you a brief excerpt thereof. The title of his article is, what, Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> who do you think you are? Now, now it's, it's probably more aptly said, who do you think you are, not who do you think you are? Here's the paragraph, or the few lines. Overall, whatever you see yourself as, if you asked five other people who spend time around you, would they agree with you? That's a good question. Do you know yourself? Is what you think a reality or are you fooling yourself? Would you feel comfortable saying, Examine me, O Jehovah, and prove me. Try my heart and my mind, Psalm 26 and verse 2. Makes a really good point. Have you ever thought maybe something about yourself and you found out somebody else didn't see you quite the way you see you? Probably all of us have had that experience, right? It's an interesting point. Whatever you see yourself as in this realm of encourager or discourager, if you asked five other people who spend a lot of time around you their assessment of that, what would they say? It's a good question. Let's take a look at the two terms, encourager and discourager. First, let's take a look at the word discourager. You can tell who that one is by what he does and says. Remember when Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them? Okay. Turn with me to a few passages in the Old Testament. Let's begin in Numbers <laughs> chapter 21. Would you turn back there with me, please? Numbers chapter 21, we're going to look at the difference between encouragement and discouragement and the difference between encouragers and discouragers as it relates to that. Numbers chapter 24, I'm sorry, 21, my bad, 21, sorry. It's actually 21, 1 through 4 is what I'm looking for. Numbers 21, 1, the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atherim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I'll utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Discouraged? I thought we just read where they had a great, did they just have a great victory? They just had a great victory. So how could they be discouraged? Why were they discouraged? Tell you why they were discouraged. 
even on the heels of that great victory. You know, sort of like Elijah, the 850 total prophets on Mount Carmel, and then, you know, he has to run for his life in, in, in uh, 1 Kings 19, 18 and 19. It's sort of like that. They have this great victory, and, and now they're discouraged, and here's why. Because they fail to count their blessings and focus on the good that God had given to them. That's why they were discouraged. Choosing instead to focus on the negative or the challenging and to be critical of God for their circumstances. The reason they became discouraged is because they took their eyes off of the victory God had given them, off of the blessings God had given them, and they instead chose to focus on the negative, the challenging, and blame God for their circumstances. You know what? That's what discouragers do, is discouraged that way. And this is how God deals with them. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Wow. Can you imagine saying to God, who's provided this manna for you, I hate this blessing. This is disgusting. They weren't focusing on the blessing. God's not impressed. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have seen, you think? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, he'll take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Turn with me to Numbers 32. See another example. Deuteronomy chapter 32, I'm sorry, Numbers 32. One through seven. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock, and when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad, verse two of Numbers 32, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Debon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sheban, Nebo, and beyond. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, livestock, and your servants have livestock. They look and say, wow, that's a great land for livestock. And guess what? We've got it. So, you ought to give it to us. Or, as it says in verse 5, Therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. Hey, we got all we need right here. So we're good. You know, the rest of you boys can travel over there and divvy up the land, but you know, we're good right here at home. We don't need to go with you, was their point. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall your children, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? 
Brethren, it discourages the hearts of God's people when part of the group that could be here or with them chooses to stay home instead and doesn't show up to help strengthen the ranks for the fight to come. That is the gist also of Hebrews 10, 24, and 5, wherein the English Standard Version says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, let me stress, could Reuben and Gad go to war with their brethren? Could they? Yes, there was nothing stopping them. For those who could, but choose to sit home when they could be there to help strengthen the brethren for their with their presence for the fight to come, discourages the hearts of the brethren. Same thing that the Apostle Paul alluded to in Romans 1, 11 and 12, where he explains that he longs to see them, that he might be encouraged together with them by their mutual faith, but it was discouraging as long as he was not there with them. What's more encouraging? To have 15 people in this church building or to have 250? What would you be more encouraged by? Wouldn't you be more encouraged if you had to bring folding chairs in and put them down the middle of the aisle? Wouldn't that be more encouraging than 15 people? Brethren, we are encouraged when all of those who could be here to help us to prepare for the fight that we're all going to be in when we walk out these doors with the rest of, the, of, of, of Satan's plans, we need that strength from one another. It is infinitely encouraging when we can all be together, but terribly discouraging when we cannot, or worse yet, when those who could simply choose not to. We continue with our story in Numbers 32, again beginning at verse 7 where we left off. Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eschol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. You remember that story, right? The, the 12 spies, that's what he's talking about, okay? That story of the 12 spies back there in Numbers 13, 21 through 33, where they sent the 12 spies up and the spies come back and they saw that it was a good land. They said, oh yeah, it's, it's great and it's got all these great benefits, but, but, but we can't do this. Ten of them said, we, we can't do this. God had said, I'm going to give you this. Hey, go take a sneak peek and see how awesome this place is and I'm going to give you. And ten of them back and they said, oh yeah, God's right. It's all, but we can't do it. We're done. We're cooked. We're toast. That wasn't Joshua and Caleb but it was them. Look in verses 10 through 14. That's the story he's referring to. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day and he swore an oath saying, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not wholly followed me except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun for they have wholly followed. The you know what God says? Look, 
When I told them I'd give them that land, and I told them how good it was, those two boys went over there into that land, they come back and they said, yeah, that land's good, and God told us we can have it, so we know we can take them. See, Joshua and Caleb were encouragers. The other 10 spies were discouragers. As we read on in this passage, it says in verse 13, so the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. Now again, understand what's going on. These two tribes are saying, we don't wanna cross the Jordan and go to war. And so Moses is simply reminding those two tribes, look, you're doing the same thing that, that your fathers did back in the day. You're not willing to go and take and fight with your brethren and take that which the Lord has told you you can have. Do you realize that you're going to bring the same condemnation on us in this generation that they brought on that generation? That's the storyline, okay? To begin with, as we read about that and we consider the whole story of the 12 spies back in, in, in Numbers 13 and 14, one thing that should be readily obvious to us is that God is not pleased with discouragers. Go back and read what happened to those 10 spies. God is not pleased with discouragers with those like the 10 spies and those who followed their lead, with those that will not follow him by preparing and then going out and fighting the fight to claim the blessing with their brethren like God told them to. God's not impressed with discouragers of that. And you know, as I thought about that, I thought, okay, what is the definition of a discourager that I would personally draw from that story of the 12 spies that's alluded to here. What, what, what would be my definition of a discourager from that? And this is what I come up with. One who whines and complains that the job that God has given us can't be done. Isn't that what the 10 spies did? One who whines and complains that the job God has given us and promised to deliver us in can't be done. Or, well, this won't do any good. We, we, can't, we can't handle this. Or, here's another one. Huh. I'm not gonna work with those people. Were the, were the spies divided? Were the 10 and the two divided? Yeah. And, and do you remember what the crowd that was following the 10 wanted to do to Joshua and Caleb? You remember that? I'm not working. Yeah, they may be encouragers, but I ain't working with them. That's a discourager. While an encourager, on the other hand, would be one like Caleb or Joshua or Barnabas. What, what kind of a definition would I come up with for that? In my mind, and you can come up with your own. I'm not asking you to accept my mind. I'm not asking you to accept anything but what I can read in Scripture, so make up your own minds, okay? But in my mind, when I think of Barnabas and Caleb and Joshua, encouragers, I would define that as one who, walking by faith, always looks to God and for the good 
and goes and works with the brethren, leading and serving and encouraging them forth daily to move forward together as one to defeat the enemies of God. Yes, I know that's a lengthy definition. We're live streaming. You can go back and take it word for word. I want to give you another passage. I'm not going to turn there, but if you want to see both encouragers and discouragers once again described and put right up there on full display and, and contrasted, that would be in Moses' recounting of history to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 32, a passage, Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 32, that I encourage you to read if you have a few minutes today. But listen, what this comes down to is this. Those like Joshua and Caleb, those like Barnabas, the son of encouragement, those who truly believe and trust in the Lord need to seek to show their faith by being encouragers instead of discouragers. They need to seek to lovingly instill and incite and increase their brethren's courage. Well, how do you do that? You do it by encouraging them to trust God, by leading the way, by showing them what it's supposed to look like, and forever spurring them upward and onward. And this is what encouragers do to instill, incite, and increase their brethren's courage and involvement in the good works of God instead of decreasing, discouraging, or deliberately trying to draw them back away from the good works of God. That's a discourager. Encouragers need to do their absolute best to seek to meet and eat and work and live and fight together as one unified body, whenever and wherever possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes, and just so nobody gets the wrong idea here, sometimes it's not possible due to health issues and all of those things. I understand that. I don't believe that Moses would have told those two tribes if every man there was, was laying there with, you know, three busted arms and four busted legs, you guys got to get up and go fight. He wouldn't have done that because it wasn't possible. And he knew that. And sometimes health issues don't allow us to, to meet and eat and fight and work and serve and, and love and, and do all those things together. But whenever we can, we must, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. That's a contrast in scripture. Rather than biting and devouring one another, Galatians 5.13 and following, we need to back up and build up and defend and encourage one another on a daily basis. It's the only way we're going to survive that fight. Are you with me on this? Please understand that. Please understand the love that is in this lesson. Barnabas-style Christians are incredible encouragers of, a, of, of everybody. For example, new converts. You ever have a new convert who comes in and maybe they don't talk just right, maybe they don't smell just, maybe they got cigarette smoke on their breath, maybe they, you know, maybe they don't dress right. We had this young lady years ago in a congregation that 
I was serving, and she's a brand new convert, and she didn't know the first thing about Christianity when she was converted, except what she'd been taught, and she obeyed the gospel. And I gotta tell you, that young lady did not always dress like a, a, a sister in Christ that had been a sister in Christ for four decades. She just didn't. And man, it was so easy for some to just, just slice and dice and chop her up, and I'm thinking, are you kidding? She ain't been a Christian for 40 years. The woman has no idea. Give her a break. Let's teach her, shall we? Let's work with her. Let's take her from where she's at to where she needs to be instead of judging her because she hasn't been a Christian for 40 years. Let's encourage her. Let's love her. Let's teach her. Let's work with her so she can become everything that God wants for her to be. A Barnabas-style Christian is an incredible encourager of new converts, not shredding them to pieces for what they don't know, but patiently teaching, supporting, and lifting them up so they can grow and continue to become everything God wants them to be. You know, we got a good example of this. I'm not going to turn there, but you know the story. Remember in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28? You can turn there if you want to, but... Acts 18, 24 through 28, you've got this man named Apollos, and he's, he's full of vigor and fire, and, and, and he wants to preach the word of God, but he only knows the baptism of John. That's all he knows. Now, it'd been real easy for somebody to say, hey, and just rip him up. But guess what? Priscilla and Aquila took him aside privately and taught him more accurately, Acts 18, 24 through 28, the truth. And when Apollos was getting ready to go to another congregation after that, the brethren there gave him a stunning recommendation. Why? Because he had grown into what God wanted him to be. He had come to understand the truth. But he didn't come to understand the truth because somebody had ripped him to shreds vocally the minute that he didn't understand everything. They worked with him instead. That's what encouragers do. Barnabas-style older men and leader of God's people must be encouragers of our younger men who will one day become the leaders of God's people themselves. We would note that from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. Listen, spiritual leaders of any age who are constantly encouraged will be strengthened to carry on the Lord's work to even greater heights, Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 and 8. But spiritual people whom we discourage, we do to our own soul's peril and detriment, especially our leaders, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Did you know that leaders in the church need encouragement too? Did you know that? And I'm not looking at myself, I'm looking, I'm thinking particularly of our, our elders at this particular point in time where they're dealing with so many, and there are others. I'm, does everybody need encouragement, you think? Everybody? Now we know our newest converts do. They're like, they're like newborn babies and they need to be protected and they need to be taught and they need to be worked with and they need to be loved and they need to be held and they need to be corrected and they need to be taught so they can grow. And, and we understand that and, and so often with our new converts we'll, we'll do that. But do we realize that, again, I brought this up before, but do we realize it was the little boy David who slew Goliath but it was the leading king man David down the road years that messed up with Bathsheba? Do we understand that? Those who've been Christians for 20, 30, 40, 50 years in this congregation, they need encouragement too. 
Don't think that that brother or sister who was here when you came here and was here 10 years before you got here has got it perfect and every day for them is perfect and they never have a bad day and they never need your encouragement. They need your encouragement just as much as the person who's still cleaning their ears out from the baptistry water. Just so you know. And leaders, God's leaders must continually encourage those whom they serve and teach. One of the key elements, we, we, all, we look back to the first century church, we look what they taught, we look how they grow, and we say, man, I wish we could do that. We, we, we claim to be them. Okay. One of the key elements of the love and growth of the first century church was their constant focus on gathering together so they could encourage and strengthen one another no matter the cost or the consequences. That was their focus. That they could gather together so that they could encourage and strengthen one another where they could, but despite even the cost or consequences. Turn to me for a real quick trip through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. And watch for those terms. Watch, watch for those terms. This is why the church grew amongst other things. This is why the church was what it was and was so wonderful to be a part of is because they gathered, they encouraged, and they strengthened one another. Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 19. Acts 14 and verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, hold it right there. Do you think they were completely safe to go out here and gather around this man who'd just been stoned and left for dead? Well, what if those guys that stoned him found out we were his friends? They were putting their lives on the line by going out here to the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? But they still gathered around him despite the life and death danger, and he rose up and went into the city. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Please turn to me to Acts 15.30. With the letter from the Jerusalem council, so to speak. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. There's our word again. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. They came together, they were strengthened, they rejoiced, they were encouraged. Acts 16:40, please. So keep tacking those on there to see if you're listening. Acts 16 and verse 40. So they went out of the prison. This is after Paul and Silas were in prison singing hymns at midnight. The jailers converted. Again, very familiar story. Look at Acts 16 and verse 40. So they went out of the prison. Brethren, anytime you have to leave the prison to do something, that means your circumstances aren't the best. When you have to leave the prison to do it, that means there was danger there at some point. They left the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them. They came, they saw the brethren together, and they encouraged them. Acts 20, verses 1 and 2 will be our final two in this segment. After the uproar had ceased, 
Brethren, whenever you see the uproar in the Bible, that means things were not totally okay. That means there was some danger. After the uproar, Acts 20 and verse 1 had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over to that region and encouraged them with many words, what's this Paul, what's this guy doing? Everywhere he goes, he's encouraging people. What's the deal with that? You suppose that's got anything to do with why the church grew in the first century? Do you suppose if Paul had gone over there and discouraged everybody and told them they might as well quit because it was over? Do you suppose if Paul had gone over there and said, you guys, you're not, you're not doing this and you're not doing that and you're a bunch of losers and so you might as well just quit now and just enjoy. You suppose that would help the church grow? Who would you rather work for? Somebody that says to you, Wow, that was a really nice job. I appreciate your efforts. Or somebody who comes in after you've given it all you've got and says, are you kidding me? My four-year-old son could have done a better job with that. Paul was always sending brethren somewhere to encourage somebody. Let me read through these quickly. Philippians 2.19, Paul wrote, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Colossians 4, 7 through 9 in the English Standard Version says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul said the whole reason I'm sending him over there is to pick you up, to build you up, to lift you up, to encourage you. Otherwise... Might as well not ascend him. And as I read those two texts, again, Philippians 2.19 and Colossians 4.7-9, did you notice the terms beloved brother, faithful and beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant? Those are the type of people you can count on to encourage. Perhaps there's no greater concentration of encouragement in four short, short chapters of the Apostle Paul's writing than we find in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to turn to that book, that's fine. I'm just going to read them. In four short chapters, 1 Thessalonians, that book ought to be called the Book of Encouragement. Turn over there and, and just follow up. We're going to go chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, just like that. Okay? Number one, we are to encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom. We right here in Shoto Hills, just the same as in Thessalonica. We are to encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 in the English Standard Version say, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Number two. We are to encourage one another in our faith and our afflictions. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3 of the New King James Version says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. 
that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are pointed to this. I, I love that text. He says, he's there to encourage your faith. He's there to encourage you in the midst of these afflictions. He says, because you all know that, that <laughs> this is what we're called to as Christians. We're going to have afflictions. And is that news to anybody in the room? As Christians, you're going to have afflictions? Okay. Well, Paul just wanted to reiterate so they'd know. We are also to encourage one another, number three, in the loss of loved ones. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 of the ESV says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Listen, when a brother or sister in Christ dies, we ought to swarm that family. We ought to swarm that family and tell them this passage right here and say, look, you stay faithful in Christ, you're going to see him again. They're in a better place than you are. They beat you. That's what I want people to say about me come to my funeral. Doug got there before I did. I want to live in such a manner as to make people jealous that I beat them. And I mean that. We should encourage them with these words. And finally, number four, we are to encourage one another and build up and be patient with the faint-hearted, the weak, and everybody else because our own salvation depends on it. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 9 in the English Standard Version reads, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, as part of that salvation, therefore, because of what we've been given, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. He didn't say they weren't doing it. He said, keep it on and keep it up and do it more. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish, admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Those who have the leadership in the congregation are to be respected, esteemed. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Brethren, we've got to be at peace so that their job is easier. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Doesn't that sound like an awesome congregation to be a part of? Because it was full of encouragers. Okay. That's the introduction. Actually, that all brings us to this. Despite all of, I've said this morning, everything, and despite our best efforts, sometimes we still don't do that. All too often we still discourage as opposed to encouraging. Despite the demands, commands, and requirements of God, we still say and do hurtful things to one another, don't we? We still tear down one another on occasion instead of building one another up. We still bite and devour when we ought to love and be tender. We continue sometimes to sit back and stay silent when we know we should stand up and speak out to encourage somebody. 
We also sometimes stand up and speak out to discourage when we should sit back and stay quiet. Sometimes we don't get involved when we know we should. Sometimes we might even secretly hope that our brethren will fail who are seeking to build up and encourage others if we don't get behind them and lend them our support. Here is the question of the day. Here's what this all has led to. We know all that good stuff we ought to do, and yet we often do what I just described. Why? Why do we sometimes discourage when we should encourage? Why do we sometimes not do the, the good thing and, and build up instead of building up, tear down? Why do we do that? And I don't want some, well, because we're human. Yeah, I know we're human, but this is, you know, we can't get off with that one all the time. Ask kid in high school class. Where's that found? They say in the Bible, you think? Nothing against the high school kids. Why do we discourage when we should encourage? Here's why. Probably because we have become discouraged ourselves. Either over the way others have treated us, challenged us, disagreed with us, or discouraged us. You see, didn't Jesus say something once about what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth? Don't I remember reading that? You re did you read that? I read that. And sometimes the reason we discourage instead of encourage is because we're full of discouragement ourselves. We're discouraged because of the place we're in in life, or we're discouraged because this brother or sister said something to me, or we're discouraged because I can't make this brother or sister agree with my opinion. We're, 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 just, we're just so full of this discouragement that it spills out. But you know what? That is not an acceptable excuse to discourage others as far as the Lord God Almighty is concerned. You may have beat me up, but that does not give me the right to beat you up in return. Somebody else may have beat me up spiritually, but that doesn't give me the right to go beat somebody else up spiritually. As we close, I want to show you the perfect example of that. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. We discourage because we are discouraged. We berate because we've been berated. We are negative to others because we are negative. We beat others up because we've been beaten up. And brethren, we can't do that. That's no excuse according to God in Hebrews 12. Please follow along in verses 1 through 3. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Did Jesus Christ take a beating from religious people? Did Jesus Christ take an oral beating from religious people 
Was he blasphemed? Was he was blood drawn on him because of religious people? Was it? What did he do? What did he do? To take it out on everybody else? No. And so the writer of Hebrews says, "Look, you got to understand this." So you don't become discouraged in your souls. Don't let somebody else, even if, they, even, even if they beat you up spiritually, don't let them fill your heart with discouragement. Don't let them fill your heart with negativity. Don't let them stay an encourager like Jesus, like Barnabas, like, like Joshua and Caleb. That's the point. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand it was religious people that did that to him, just like some of them are going to do to you. But he says in verse 4, but you've not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Has the Lord ever, has the Lord ever corrected you? He's corrected me. Has he ever corrected you? Did you let that discourage you and say, that's it, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore? If you are, why are you here? And sometimes people, for a lot less noble purposes, are going to try to discourage you and beat you up and correct you and all that. But he said, look, you've got to understand what's going on here. Finally, in verses 11 through 15, he says this. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that whatever is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. In other words, if I may put this in our vernacular, don't get all bent out of shape. Pursue peace with all people. Even that one who said something to this, yeah, yep, all people means, yeah, that's what it means. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Remember, this was written to Christians. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Whatever you allow to reign in your heart is going to be what comes out of your mouth. You take a cup that's full of water, what happens when you shake it? What's inside of it spills. If fear, anger, bitterness, and discouragement are what's in your heart that you allow to live there and you feed it, then you're going to become a discourager. However, if faith, hope, love, trust in God's promises, and encouragement is what's in your heart, then encouragement is what's going to come out when you get shaken up, just like that glass of water. What's in your heart this morning? Not what's in your wallet. <laughs> what's in your heart this morning? What do others see come out of you when you get shaken up? Maybe this sermon this morning shaken you up a little. If it has, we can see what's inside you by what comes out of you. Because it's met with the love of God to help us all get to heaven. This morning, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you're somebody who has heard this lesson and you say, man, I, I'm not the encourager I ought to be, and you need the prayers of the church. If you have any need at all, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?